0: Welcome to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. Marketing is our passion, and as a chapter, we hope to inspire dialogue, fuel creativity, and create a community for marketers everywhere. Let the inspiration and dialogue begin. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe to our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us.
1: Hello, we're your Marketers in Motion podcast hosts. I'm Josh Genoviak.
2: And I'm Megan Pear.
1: The marketing metric of the next decade will be trust. There will be no more effective nor more critical way of building a brand than building a community who trusts you enough to advocate on your behalf. With trust in brands and advertising at an all-time low, there will never be a better time to build a human-centered marketing strategy. The tactics of this decade, data collection, tracking, endless ads, will not work in the next. Your customers are already telling you how to connect with them in a way that will grow your business. Are you ready to listen?
2: I am, and I'm ready to dive into this topic. But before we do that, um, we, of course, want to thank all of our amazing AMA West Michigan sponsors who support our podcast and our entire AMA West Michigan season. So, first, a thank you to our podcast sponsor, River City Studios. Uh, we are record- recording remotely today, but Josh, we're excited to be back in the studio, hopefully next month. Yeah. Social distancing, of course. Um, but if you have not checked out River City Studios, um, please do. They offer recording, mixing, and mastering for podcasts, TV, film radio and for musicians. So check them out online at rivercitystudios.com. We also want to give a huge shout out to our annual sponsors that support our programming year round. We appreciate their continued support and of course are thinking of all our sponsors and their businesses, um, especially during these difficult times. So to our gold sponsors, MI Biz and Bizcom Media, to our silver sponsors, PageWorks, Bird and Bird Studio and Red 66 Marketing, and to our bronze sponsors, OFA and Grand Valley State University Conference and Event Planning.
1: Yes. Thank you very much to our sponsors. We love you and we appreciate you. If you are not an AMA member yet, that's what we are all about. An AMA membership is $149 per year. That's less than $13 a month if you do the math to help you more easily access AMA tools and resources that you need to lead through the challenges ahead. With an AMA membership, you'll become part of a national team and a local chapter to use the power of networking to grow your knowledge. You'll also have access to national resources and toolkits to make smarter business decisions, along with access and discounts to national training and certifications. AMA National is online at ama.org and are awesome local West Michigan chapter is online at amawestmichigan.org. There is a very cool upcoming virtual conference, uh, July 21st to the 22nd, put it on your calendar now, marketing in the new normal. We'll probably be talking about a lot of the things that we've been talking about in our last few podcasts Mm -hmm. during this whole pandemic. Uh, More info and registrations are online at ama.org forward slash events. And of course, lots of different virtual conferences are also available to AMA members. And there's a lot of free stuff online too, Megan, with everything that's been happening with the pandemic as well. Yep.
2: Awesome. Well, let's get started and dive right in. So we want to welcome our guest today, Cliff Seal. Uh, A little bit about him. Cliff is a principal designer at Salesforce, helping build world-class customer experience tools. Through talks and workshops given around the world, he helps companies become customer-centric by leveraging proven research and design strategies. He is based in Atlanta, where he co-organizes AMUX, a morning meetup for the city's user experience community. He also co-hosts TuneDig, a deep dive music podcast discussing music history, theory, and cultures. Our fellow podcaster here.
1: Yeah.
2: And I love this. You can usually find him tinkering with ideas, standing at a concert pre-COVID, of course. um, Biking, snowboarding, or defending the Oxford comma. So I think the last one, we might have to have you back on, Cliff, so we can have a little debate. Um, But I would like to welcome you to the Marketers in Motion podcast, Cliff. Welcome.
1: Thanks so much. It's so good to be here. I want to know, not to get sidetracked on it, but are are you against the Oxford comma, Megan?
2: Yeah, I am. Are you really? Okay. (laughs) I feel like we could have a good debate going. Maybe that's a If podcast. you can
3: list three things that you're against, we can win this debate once and for all. Oh!
1: <laughs> <laughs> love it.
2: The challenge. We only have an hour, Cliff. We only have an hour. So, <laughs> All right. Well, we'll take that offline. Maybe that'll be a show note follow-up. Cliff and Megan debate the Oxford comma um, <laughs> in the show notes. I love it. Well, welcome, Cliff. Again, um, you are not new to AMA West Michigan. We um, were so thankful to have you in person. About three years ago, you came and talked to our uh, chapter about death to boring B2B marketing, which was a fantastic presentation. Um, but since we haven't seen you in three years, what have you been up to?
3: Well, good grief. Uh, what haven't <laughs> I been up to? Yeah. Uh, continuing to work, uh, first of all, at at Salesforce, uh, I've, I've loved my job so far. Uh, I spent uh, a long time working specifically on the the Part B two B marketing product, um, which is. You know, kind of the, the basis of what I was able to come up there and talk about. Uh, and then I get to share a lot of times I'm, I'm extremely focused on helping marketers specifically leverage not only the data and research that's available to them, but also leverage design tools that I learn in my career that are applicable to helping people collaborate, come up with new ideas uh, and ultimately experiment more safely in their marketing so that they can reach their customers better. Um, so, yeah, so I've, I've been continuing to work on that over the last several years continuing again prior to uh everything going to hell just a little bit uh continuing to uh to give talks and do workshops and things like that because i'm really passionate about that as well um other than that things that haven't changed uh still surrounded by music still riding bicycles all the time uh and lastly still defending the oxford comma
2: (laughs) (laughs) well awesome it sounds like a lot of a lot of exciting things happening at salesforce um i love your passion for what you do that's so great so thank you for
3: for sharing that with us today
1: sure absolutely have you been able to uh evolve in the short term and do any of these events remotely
3: i have um i've done a couple of digital conferences i've done some podcasting like this um, i've got other uh, digitalish events coming up um uh, just to kind of be vulnerable with everybody because uh, i can't see anyone who's listening to this podcast yet so I, I don't know how to be embarrassed until they listen to it um it, it's a it's a weird transition for someone like myself actually to go to a more digital format uh, I'm uh, for lack of a better term a little bit introverted which sounds like it runs counter to giving talks but actually um, no one bothers you while you're talking on stage it's super rude for anyone to interrupt you so it's kind of like your own social bubble uh, so good, to, point, good point yeah so but to kind of swap from that and do a little bit more of the kind of live streaming video type stuff. Uh, You know, I grew up at a time where that was like an extremely video game thing. Uh, So it's kind of stuck in my head a little bit. So it's been an interesting transition. But yeah, I'm learning to do it because this is how we got to get the word out and share ideas now.
1: Um, So I'm really leaning into it. Well, I know, Megan, we've been talking. We've been uh, trying to nab somebody in that event space that can speak to us in our next podcast about, you know, how to Mm -hmm. host digital and virtual events so hopefully we'll uh we'll have that on our next on our next podcast
2: absolutely all right well let's dive into things um so you've kind of given this new presentation called trust in the future so let's start here just so you just to give you some background too um i think number one this is a, an extremely relevant topic given our kind of current situation um with everything going on but our ama theme for this kind of past year was all about what's next um and so i think this is a really nice uh, foundation for this is this what's next of, of trust being this new marketing metric so let us know what this is all about and, and why the state of trust is the way it is and why it's so important
3: i think The word trust and the kind of concept of it has gotten a little bit overused and maybe abused over the years Um, and like many marketing metrics has kind of come to mean um, some kind of cheap version of what the reality of it is. And so one of the things I wanted to start looking at over the past year uh, in the way that this presentation came together, actually the prompt was like, can you help marketers and marketing teams understand the impact of the new privacy laws? and first of all even then when we were starting to talk about it you know very early on probably well over a year at this point um it was pretty clear there was no real shortage of direct feedback to marketers about new privacy laws and what they mean and things like that Um, and so the the thing that kind of arose for me that seemed to um to get some good responses out of folks that I was talking to with these initial ideas with that kind of underlying idea of like, but trust is so ephemeral, how do we actually measure it? What does it really even look like to feel like you can trust a company enough to engage in their marketing? So the way that this talk came together was beginning to talk with folks about the new privacy laws that had been enacted and how we could express some of the changes to marketers, how they could adapt them and integrate them into their their marketing programs and all that. Um, and what sort of arose out of those conversations was not so much that we needed to be yet another presentation talking about what the laws themselves mean and what they technically need to uh, You know how that implementation needs to work for you to abide by the law and all that. It was more about that there was this kind of emerging space between what trust means when it comes to building it through consecutive marketing efforts and campaigns and messages, versus the way that someone like Seth Godin would talk about trust, where he can pinpoint it and tell you very exactly how you should be able to have this thing with your tribe, right? You should be able to build trust over time with people. And there seemed to be this gap in between privacy laws and what you can't do and then building a raving fan base, right? And so we wanted to start talking through what does the data actually show about what it means to correlate signals with what ends up being trust over time because there's no specific definition of it, right? And so what we wanted to look for was research that helped us understand what the corollaries were between the way that people respond to messages, the way that they talk about your brand and the trust that actually results in revenue, uh, in loyalty and things like that. So I wanted to try to bridge those gaps. And so I spent a lot of time looking at research papers, um, you know, talk about a a topic that we could do for hours on another podcast. Uh, I spend a lot of time making sure that any research I pull out is actually done well, um, that uh, it's pretty hard to get marketing uh, research peer reviewed or anything equivalent to the science community. But we can look at sample sizes, we can look at underlying data, we can look at the way questions are structured. Um, And again, this is, This brings in part of what I do for a living. Uh, It's part of my job to understand how to ask a good research question and not lead people towards the answer that you're trying to get. So dug through tons of research to try to draw out what's actually happening with the state of trust as it relates to your customers and your potential customers? How can you start to measure how you're doing with your customers in terms of building trust? And then what are some of the signs that are on the other end of you actually succeeding at this? What does it look like for you to build trust and have it actually result in something meaningful? So that was kind of the big idea. Uh, And any talk like that I give goes through a million different iterations, but but that was kind of where we ended up on this one. and uh, one that's really interesting already, I, I got to give it in, you know, before COVID hit, I got to give it in Sweden at a huge marketing conference oh, there wow. to a lot of the C-suite folks over there. Um, got to give it at, um, at a version of it at Dreamforce. So, you know, one of the one of the biggest events for obviously Salesforce customers, mm-hmm. but tons of marketers there. Um, and so we've gotten to stress test the presentation a little bit already. And, uh, you know, folks seem to be really identifying with it. And it seems to bring an interesting perspective on trust, at least.
2: Well, we're excited that you chose uh, Marketers in Motion, uh, share it with as well. Um, I love that, first of all, I will just echo, your presentations have always been phenomenal with the research. Um, You know, you've always stated that, you know, everything that you've looked at is always clearly marked in your presentations, it's accessible, and like you said, it's very valuable and validated research. So we will definitely share that in the show notes as well. Um, But can you talk a little bit about, you know, obviously looking through all of that, what does the state of trust look like today?
3: Sure. So I I try to draw out a few different distinctions about trust in this presentation specifically because it presents in a number of ways. Um, If you can't tell, like I'm a really big dork on like pulling words apart that we think mean a certain thing, but actually when you start to ask and talk about, Well, what does it mean to you everyone has a slightly different definition and it turns out no one's running in the same direction at all Um, so some of the main things i draw out um, the the way i talk about it is that distrust has become a cultural phenomenon that's kind of spread throughout a number of different things uh, that we can see not only in products but in consumer behavior uh, and then also um, one thing i would like to bring up in just a second social behavior as well and uh, you know quite honestly in 2020, we're seeing all of this stuff super amplified as well yeah. um, which is one yeah which is one reason I'm like really excited to have put this together so we can continue talking about it um, so can I go through the the three main areas I see is that cool hey. yeah, absolutely awesome. Yeah. Cool. So, so one of the things I talk about is when we want to learn how much distrust has come into play culturally, um, we can see that borne out in the way that the world's largest companies are starting to ship privacy based features by default. They're actually starting to implement things in software and hardware that run totally counter to them being able to make money, which was only starting to creep out a little bit. I'll give a couple of examples, was only starting to eke out a little bit last year. So very recently, Amazon decided to have a one-year moratorium on their use of facial recognition technology and how they sell it to other people, right? A number of other companies, uh, I believe IBM was another company that decided to pretty much put facial recognition totally on hold for certain purposes for a while. uh, As a result of, uh, some of the protests that are going on and some of the cultural movements that are here, but my my larger point is that even the world's largest companies are starting to say privacy has to be apparent even from us in order for us to gain the consumer trust on the other end for us to be able to continue you know leading in business. So the the two examples I brought out in terms of privacy as default features were first of all Apple uh, with. Uh, with the sign in with Apple. I know we've started to see some of this in applications because it's starting to roll out more and more. Um, But there are a couple interesting things in here for marketers, which I think are huge. First of all, sign in with Apple um, I've done some mobile app development in my time, so I'm familiar with like the way that Apple pushes out guidelines. So they've actually forced not only that you integrate a sign-in with Apple feature if you're using other social logins, but you're supposed to have it above all the other options too. They like they're actually finding a way as a company to force developers who are there, you know one of their main contacts with the end user, they're actually forcing developers to prioritize sign- in with Apple. Now, sign in with Apple itself is a privacy feature because what it enables you to do is not only use information that Apple already has about you to speed up the signup process, but there's a thing in there called hide my email. And I love talking about this because marketers seem pretty surprised by this still. And it's huge. Apple is giving you the built in ability to say, actually, don't let this company have my email address and still let me create an account. And so Apple is like anonymizing the email address, like working as a proxy for you, and it's baked right into the operating system. And that's really huge, right? But it's, it's a great example of drawing out what trust begins to look like and what's correlated with it. Because what Apple's doing is saying at that point, we believe our customers trust us more than almost anyone else that uses our platform. And so we believe customers would rather let us control their data and pass, you know, an equivalent on to another customer, uh, or to another company, as opposed to interacting with that company directly, because companies aren't trustworthy with your data. And so, like, you can start to put these things together, um, not only on the device level, but even across all of the very popular browsers that are shipping now default cookie and fingerprint blocking is just happening now it's being turned on by default it used to be in there as an option now you're going to have to go in there and turn it off which is going to make a lot of things a lot harder for a lot of people but it's a way of showing that privacy is actually coming to the fore so much so that the world's largest companies are just saying yeah we have to do this or we're going to get left behind so that that's one big part of them another one is just the rising popularity of choosing privacy and that's basic things like how many people in the world are already blocking ads um i don't even have to say the stat for me to know that anyone who's listening to this think of a number how many people in the world are blocking ads as a percentage it's way more than whatever you just thought of like way more um and so like, even years ago, we were seeing, seeing well over a third of global users blocking ads by default anyway. We were also seeing more than a quarter of global users using a VPN, um, which you know, for the slightly less technical folks, especially uh, a less technical marketer who's not as familiar with that stuff, that means you don't get to know their IP address, which means you don't get to do location-based anything. And so, like, these are continuing to be leveraged more and more because it's easy to, to download an app and use a VPN, right? Like, Cloudflare has a new service you can use for free, and I've been using it all the time. Super easy to log into and just start integrating into your daily life. Uh, and then the other stat I love to remind people of is, like, Gmail users and other email clients can just turn off images by default. So not only is your super pretty HTML email like totally broken if you shoved all of your text into images, which you shouldn't be doing, but second of all, that tracking pixel, which tells you whether an email was opened as a result of a subject line, is not trustworthy. Um, and I know it's you know it's probably a little bit of a weird thing to say as a person who works on a product that leverages some of these technologies. And I'm sure people wouldn't love me talking about it. But this is like the this is the reality of it, and so. We're seeing it on devices. We're seeing it easier to adopt as a choice, um, and then lastly, we begin to see privacy manifest as it, like something physical and social in the world. Now, at the time where I created this presentation, uh, when coronavirus didn't exist in our uh, in our minds at all yet, mm-hmm. uh, or anywhere. Um, One of the examples I pulled out were all the protests in Hong Kong, where privacy was being shown as a a mask that was being used to interrupt the ability for facial recognition technology to take place. And so not only was it helping uh, cut down on, uh, you know security based or privacy based technology but on top of it the thing i drew out of it was it became a cultural icon quite literally people were drawing masks on advertisements uh, on things in public on murals because it represented a movement of people who didn't want to be surveilled upon and so like i loved drawing these things out because it helps people to kind of see actually if i start looking for trust i see it everywhere Trust isn't in particular places, it's not necessarily one particular thing. It's actually a phenomenon that's spread out across all of the different ways that we interact with one another now. And so it has huge implications, obviously, on the way people are interacting with your marketing.
1: When you mentioned log in with, with Apple, are you talking about when you go into a website, now you're seeing, usually you could, it started with Facebook, log in with Facebook, then log in with Google, then log in with Apple. Is Apple the only one that's protecting your privacy? Well, they're certainly the only
3: ones naming it something like hide my email. Okay. Um, so, yeah. And as far as I know, you know, there's not a lot of competitors out there in the uh, mobile OS space, but they're certainly the only ones shipping it on the the OS level to where it's integratable into pretty much every application.
1: Okay. Well, and I, and I know, Megan, you know, we, it, w- with our prior podcast and our discussions with with Michael Barber, we talked a lot about just, you know, using, gmail versus apple mail and talking about the integrations and the tools that have been built into your gmail now but of course everything with gmail as i understand is you know you're sharing all that information with google where apple is kind of on the on the converse they're trying to protect all of your privacy and um, then who knows what happens when you're signing in with facebook i think we all know what's happening when you (laughs) sign into facebook (laughs) okay so so when given the choice if you have an if an apple email account and you uh you want to be on the dl you want to use that address
3: it i mean honestly it's even easier because what it does is it uses your like icloud email address so that uses my personal email address so i can just like you click the button a couple of times and it just signs in and does everything for you and if and if uh, if it's supported in whatever that flow is, I can just check a button that says basically don't send cliff.seal at com over to this company. Nice. Send some proxy email address. Okay.
2: Well, thank you for that. That was such a great setup and a, and a really good foundation to to the state of trust. Um, and I will just mention too, um, like one of my favorite reports I read it every single year is the Edelman Trust Barometer. Um, so I will just say to marketers, um, I see you shaking your head there, Cliff. Um, if if you have not checked out this report, they just do a phenomenal job on the state of trust outside of just brand trust. It's the state of trust in general. And they've had some really good special issues, especially now that COVID um, has hit and what trust looks like there. So um, definitely check out that resource, but let's transition and talk a little bit about um, why it's so important for brands to focus on building the trust, especially right now, um, and what that advantage is for them to, to really start focusing on this.
3: Totally. Um, this is one of the benefits of being able to get on stage and no one interrupts you. You can just kind of say whatever you want for a minute. I, I love to tell people, first and foremost, you should be building trust with people because you're a human being and you should be connecting with other people in moral and ethical ways by telling the truth and getting customers who want to be your customer into your business. That is the way that marketing should work and it's the way it can work. The problem is we have these in-between situations where we've got to please a boss or someone who holds the budget or someone who doesn't maybe value that as much as we'd like. And that's okay. So that's a reality we have to deal with. But Can I just
2: quickly say (laughs) mic drop? We can end the podcast now. (laughs) I love that statement. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that was, that was a beautiful statement. Okay. You can proceed.
3: (laughs) It's it's okay. You can sum everything up with be excellent to one another. (laughs) But yeah, so Kind of moving past that right almost no one is in a situation where they can just kind of operate however it occurs to them totally morally or ethically so sometimes you got to prove yourself to folks so i also try to point out okay if trust is in this situation if distrust is cultural and i try to give a lot obviously like a lot of examples of why that should be the case then everyone has the opportunity then to say actually we like apple for instance we value your trust and here's how and people are in a place right now, and I pull out a lot of data also uh relative to the the trust barometer report that's a ton of data in this uh, in this uh in my presentation on this as well um, but I love to draw people out with the not only is it the right thing to do but also we can empirically link trustworthy behavior to increased revenue and loyalty. And so I like to say that companies who begin to build trust now especially, have a first mover advantage. Now, I think hopefully we'll we'll touch on one or both of these maybe um, as we continue this conversation, but this only continues to be more true in a situation where uh, COVID has put us at home and kind of on our heels in terms of marketing specifically, um, because I am very empathetic with All these users who I've gotten to talk to over a decade now in a situation where everyone goes, actually, I have no idea what budgets are like now. Actually, I have no idea who can afford to buy what and no one knows anything about anything and every state is different and every city is different. so in even the state of Georgia and the city of Atlanta is a great example of that. Businesses in Georgia, outside of the city of Atlanta, um, might be able to stay alive right now because of the way that some things have changed in the city of Atlanta, absolutely not. We're all staying at home, we're way too dense, right? So there's a lot of uncertainty around how to build trust that results in something positive now, but it's a really big opportunity brands and companies to take advantage of this situation uh, in in a moral way, again, uh, and try to connect with people in a really meaningful way. uh, At the same time that we're all trying to figure all this stuff out from a business perspective, like, I mean, I'll just say, I think personally, we're all very vulnerable and, and feeling kind of raw right now. And we are looking for entities to put our trust in because by God, a lot of people are coming out that aren't trustworthy at this point, right? So, so brands have a lot of opportunities to build that, and honestly, it's even more of an opportunity now between COVID uh, and all of the Black Lives Matters protests that are going on as well. These are opportunities to be truly authentic and build real trust with people. It's just as much of an opportunity uh, for you to jack that up on accident uh, by not being authentic and trying to cheat and build trust for no good reason, right?
1: And it's just it's so interesting because, Megan, since our last podcast, I mean, everything was pandemic, pandemic, pandemic. And now it's, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and it's it's all happening right now. And yes, the trust issue couldn't be more important at this time. So my question is, what are some organizations that are handling this really well? And what are some of the things that they're doing that we might be able to implement? to build trust? Sure. Um, So there
3: are several, Uh, first of all, I, even though I work for Salesforce and I love Salesforce, I try really hard not to use Salesforce as an example. Every time I go and talk, speaking of not building trust, it just like, doesn't feel authentic. So like, here's my Salesforce shirt. Here's my Salesforce title, and Salesforce is a great example of all the great things I'm talking about. Uh, this is definitely not a sales pitch, somehow, right? Um, so, but uh, I can say that, like, because our company was structured from the beginning uh, to figure out ethical situations and make public stances as a company that we at the very least were positioned to live out our values in a meaningful way. And we were able to roll those things out quickly. So I will just give a nod to my employer, even though I try to avoid it because we have done a really great job there. And because it's a, it, they have found a way to involve all of the people who work at the company in a number of those ideas. Um, but I've got several other examples of how to do this type of thing. I'd love to kind of talk through specific instances of how we build trust and give some examples that way uh, instead of trying to to do it kind of writ large. Would that be okay with you? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Okay, awesome. So one of the things I love to talk about uh, is that, We begin to have this issue, again, you know, this talk kind of came from marketers wanting to know how privacy laws affect them in the long term, right? And so one of the things that seemed really obvious to everybody uh, was, okay, marketing personalization is gonna go away because how could we possibly abide by privacy laws and knowing you know, the momentum behind those laws, they're only gonna get more strict. Um, so like personalization is essentially dead. And I love to bring out the fact that that is empirically not true, but it may require you to rethink what those terms mean and how they relate to one another. So I love to talk about how trust and personalization aren't at odds. One of the things I love drawing out One particular study I enjoy talking about asked two different questions, and I I really want people to pay attention to this because I think it's it's fascinating and shows the kind of razor's edge on which these meanings turn. So in the same study, and these are of global users, so not just America, uh, but across the world, people were asked whether they agree with things or not here. So the first statement was, brands should not be able to use my personal data to try and market different things to me. So approximately 80% of people surveyed around the world. And again, these I look into the research. I make sure that the numbers are pretty good. So this feels like a pretty reliable data point. So, so people are saying, actually, brands should not be able to use my personal data to market different things to me. And the same survey, the exact same people filling it out said that they would be more loyal to a brand that showed that they really understood me and what I was looking for it's the same statistic. Almost 80% of people worldwide also agree with that. So how is it possible that people say, I really want you to understand me. The only way you can understand me is if you store my data in some capacity, right? And at the same time, brands should not be able to use that personal data to market different things to me. So I think that phrase, try and market different things to me is the critical point that we're looking at. When we talk about personalization in marketing, and we've always been talking about this, it's just more specific now. Personalization should lead people in the direction that they want to go. You should be showing them information that they want to see and that they want to read and help them to buy things that they actually want to buy. right? And so that little piece of data here, the try and market different things to me, that is the companies who are sucking in all of the data that they can possibly do, and then they're trying to bring in other data. They're buying data, they're cross-mapping data to try to infer things. They're trying to create these data-driven decisions that then allow them to go back to the same megaphone and yell at people again. And so these things aren't necessarily running counter to one another. It just means we have to really rethink what personalization means. So to answer like to answer one of your questions too about example companies one of the ones I love to bring up is Spotify so Spotify I'm a huge music nerd uh, and I know this is a podcast so no one can see what's behind me but you two can there's four guitars behind me every poster that's here is like music based I have a music podcast I went to school for music so like this was my thing right this is the thing I have the most data on uh, and yet I am and I have been willing to give Spotify 100% of anything that they can find out about me through use of their application or anything else. Wow. And in fact like um uh hopefully this uh this won't upset anyone from Spotify who's listening but before it was available in America I used a VPN located in Europe to sign myself up for Spotify so that I could use it ahead of time because of how stoked I was about <laughs> being able to stream music. I
0: love so that.
3: like And before that, I had built my own streaming service using a home server. So, like, I'm super into this idea, right? The reason Spotify gets my data is because they give me a return on it. So, I don't know if you both are Spotify users or not, but like, it cranks out. Uh, custom playlists for you. It cranks out. The most important thing to me is called release radar, which takes my listening habits and then says, you've listened to these artists before and they have new releases now. Mm -hmm. And like, that's just a thing. I, I spent untold hours trying to build something like that using web technology over the years. And every time I, go back to spotify to learn something about myself it gives me value and so to me that's a really good example of they're not asking me for household income data because they don't need it and i don't want to give it to them but what they are saying is we want to track 100 percent of everything that you're listening to all the time and we want to use that data to give something back to you so to me that's a really great example of tying the trust that's been built up over time to the value of sharing data and being willing to essentially sacrifice a form of privacy in exchange for something I get in return. It's an ongoing relationship that builds. So that was, a, that was a long run to one example, but I hope that that makes a lot of sense. Like that's that's kind of my primary, like I wanna feed data into this machine until it's out of room for all of my data because it keeps giving me stuff back in return. Yeah,
2: no, I love that you said that. In fact, when I was kind of going through your presentation and and prepping for today, um, I I noted that you put they're not trust and personalization are not at odds. And the thing that I wrote is the way that I personally see it is that personalization is the foundation to building the relationship if you're doing it correctly and providing value based on the data. And you're absolutely right. Like if you don't need that point of data and it isn't going to provide value to the person, doing personalization just for the sake of personalization is not building trust. So, yes.
1: Well, I think it's a control thing as well. I mean, if organizations are letting you know you have the control of what you share with us and by you sharing X, we're able to serve you this. I I love that whole idea. I'm, I'm Again, I've said it on numerous podcasts, as a marketer, I love it when I am searching for certain content and then I see stuff related to things that I like rather than stuff that means nothing to me. So yeah, I think a lot of it just goes back to that. The organization's letting you know that you are in control of what you're sharing. And we, so Cliff, because we're talking about the podcast, we recently put our, our RSS on Spotify. So I signed up for the, the free premium and had it for a month to really try it out. And um, now I'm trying out all these different services to see what I like before I commit. But yes, it was very cool because all of your listening habits, it will serve up your, here's your daily playlist. And based off of your daily playlist, here's other artists that you may like. It was It was a really cool experience.
3: Yeah. And I've, I've watched it get better over time. Like Spotify was trying to do this early on. Uh, and then it, it acquired a company called Echo Nest and Echo Nest was out doing all kinds of crazy stuff, enabling you to say, um, here's some of my music data. You could use it from other services that were collecting that sort of thing. You could basically feed it into this API that would give you algorithmic recommendations in return based on any number of different facets that didn't exist at all. So it's been really interesting not only to see them you know, show up week after week with giving me a return on my data, but then also they continue to give um, not only better uses of the data, but they continue to give you ways to give feedback to the system, which I think is really important. So like, there are ways now for me to say, I don't like this song, I don't like this artist. And it's not just about skipping it in like a radio station. Now it's actually ingesting that information and saying, okay, that wasn't right, let's find better recommendations. And so I just, I love the the mounting of value of giving data to companies like that who have earned trust. Um, but you mentioned control, and I, I would love to touch on that really briefly, because the control is a really important aspect of this that kind of rose to the surface through GDPR and other data regulation type things, because they, you know, they force companies to give mechanisms for users to control their own data. Um, but using some of uh, some of the research I used in this presentation, check this: ninety-two percent. Of people surveyed said that they were more likely to trust businesses with their data when they're given control over what's collected yes yeah and it sounds really obvious but it's really hard to put into practice when you're the marketer saying actually we don't need a 13th ad tracker on this to feed data into some other system right now because it's not going to help us right when people talk about given being given control over the data that's collected that's not just what they're sticking in forms, right that's that's their behavior that's the demographic data that you're trying to collect on them that's the geographic data you're trying to collect based on what their ip address is and all of this right people have not uh, historically had control over what's being collected because ultimately they don't have visibility into what the browser is passing back and forth to all these different systems and so I, I really love like harping on that really important and specific statistic because it, it requires kind of an about face with marketing departments as well. It's not just how much data can we get from you before you realize that we're collecting all this data from you. And it becomes, no, actually the way to build trust is to be transparent from the jump. Yeah. Don't collect data that people haven't told you that you can collect because they don't want you to. It does not build trust. And eventually they'll find out like it it doesn't play well anymore. Um, and so like one one thing I love to bring up because people go then within what like what can I collect and how can this work? Um, So I encourage people to look into an emerging concept called zero party data. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been coined in a couple of different places. It's been talked about in forcer reports and things like that. But I think it's an important way to look at what it means to collect data in a way that gives people control over it because what zero-party data is is describing is basically data that's not first, second, third-party data. It's not implied information about people. It's not data you bought from someone that you're trying to imply. It is literally, hey, can I have your email address? Here's what I'm gonna use it for. May I have your first name? Here's what I'm gonna use it for. I'd like your address because X, Y, and Z, right? It's not just trying to collect as much information as possible. And so like one really clear example of this would be, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever tried to download a white paper, I'm sure you haven't, but it always asks for your phone number. And Mm -hmm. what is that phone number gonna be used for?
2: They're gonna call you about the uh, sales.
3: That's right. And were you (laughs) filling out a form that said, I wanna be called about this? No, you're just trying to download a dang PDF that you found that they, you know, they really hyped up. It sounds good. You're trying to download the PDF, but you're going to get something else in return. And like, it's a a pretty simple, but obvious way of showing you've got to tell people, not only here's the data I want, but here's why I want it. And here's what we're going to do with it. You can't presume to give people the sensation or feeling of control if they don't actually know what data you have or how you're going to use it. They need to give it to you directly and they need to know what they're doing when they give it to you in order for you to have data that they trust you having. Like it's hard and it, it it kind of sucks um, from a marketing perspective to be honest with you because it means you've kind of got to dismantle a lot of stuff you may have paid for over the years. And that's not easy. And that's why I try to be, you know, really thoughtful when we talk about this stuff. This is not a, you know, uh, hear the little short dude talking a t-shirt about zero party data. uh, And then on Monday you go back to the boss and you're like, you know what, this guy said this and so we're canceling all of our accounts. Like it's not that easy, right? But it's still the direction you need to move in because it is the type of data that enables you to build trust with people. It is the way that you can get information from people to personalize their experience in a way where they don't feel like you're kind of doing something under the table, right? you are using the data i give you to personalize the experience for me and together we are walking ourselves towards the right sort of business arrangement
2: yeah it's it's a it's a massive shift <laughs> uh you know for marketing and and how we've done marketing for years so you're absolutely right you've got to baby step it in i think um because it is going to take time to make these significant you know adjustments to the to the way that we're doing it yeah
1: well i think it's it goes to just it goes to day-to-day communication. I mean, you don't just walk up to somebody on the street and give them something and ask them for your number, or you don't just you know meet somebody and you automatically trust them. I mean, everybody's defenses are up in the beginning, and you want to know whether or not do I trust this person? Is this somebody I want to get to know? Do I want want to meet? So the more transparent you are, it's just like any natural relationship or any natural human interaction. And I think you know, often in work, in business, in marketing, we get caught up. in that and we just want to sign us up for this and we want to get all we want to harvest your information but we're not going to tell you and so yeah i think a lot of it just goes back to regular human one-on-one contact principles
3: yeah and i also want to I want to give some kind of helpful steps for like writing the ship a little bit on that too. Because again, I, I always want to come back to especially B2B marketers because I, I got so familiar with them and continue to um, over the years doing research and designing products for them. I know that in order to get budget, in order to get a buy-in, in order to get support from your organization, you can't just say, hey boss, um, we're just talking to humans like humans over here actually. Um, so we're just being nice people. Uh, And I know that you want more metrics, but actually like we're working really hard on just being like decent. And in the long run, it'll pan out for sure. Right. And like, even if you've got a great boss who's willing to hear you out, eventually that person's boss will need a number right? And eventually right. you have to give numbers. And so I think a lot of what's happening is we're, we're kind of getting this overlap. I think marketers do want to build trust and they want to talk to people like people. They want to think about it in terms of conversation and social norms, right? I, I've given a presentation on that as well and people laugh at how obvious stuff is, right? Mm-hmm. But so the marketer's job in this reality is to say, okay, if I want my company to survive long term and to build trust long term, I've got to figure out how Quarter over quarter, year over year, I can begin to move the company's expectations of marketing in a direction that aligns with building trust. And so sometimes that means nitpicking uh, a metric that used to, you know, be an easy thing for you to tell your boss. You know, look at how many people we got to the website. Look at how many emails we sent out this month. You know, maybe because we bought a list, but your boss doesn't know that, right? And so they would love to see how many emails you sent out and all that sort of thing. And so it takes the effort to say, okay, this year, we're not going to track that metric anymore because it's not as helpful. And we're going to try this one uh, that's a little bit more nebulous, but it helps us to move the company in a better direction. And so you have to find ways to compromise with the people who supply you with work and with budget, right? You can't just go so far off the deep end that you get fired and someone else comes in and gives them (laughs) the metrics they want. Right. Yeah. So I, I just I love to point that out because I know that marketers are always in this almost perpetually in a situation of simultaneously trying to please the people who need things from them and make marketing work better overall in a way that really only they understand. So I, I love to try to give people those next steps.
2: Yeah, no, I think that is extremely helpful because that is the ultimate challenge, right? <laughs> we all feel that very much every day. Um So I want to, I want to end here too. Uh, You mentioned trust is an authentic social engagement. And I think this is obviously, you know, given everything that's kind of going on in our current environment, this is such a relevant topic. So let's unpack this a little bit. Can you talk about this?
3: Oh, I would love to. It's fun (laughs) right now. Uh, (laughs) Promise. I promise myself I can do this segment without dunking on any brands in particular. So we'll do that. Uh, But Definitely right now, post uh, Black Lives Matter movement, rising to the fore. I just want to be really clear. I'm from Atlanta, the cradle of the civil rights movement. Black Lives Matter is not a new thing, even if everyone is just hearing about it for the first time in certain parts of the country or world. But it has risen to the social consciousness of everyone, not only in America, but worldwide. And so I I do want to make sure people know people have been doing work on this for a long, long time. But as soon as it rises and crosses that threshold into being a thing that people recognize and have opinions about, we immediately started getting brands, issuing boilerplate statements, um, ultimately because you both tell me if you disagree with this. But I would say that most brands who posted something did it because if they didn't, they would get yelled at. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. As hard as it is to say right now, that's not authentic. If you didn't have something to say, you shouldn't have said it, which is part of the reason why some of those companies are saying things and then people are immediately saying, hey, send me a picture of your executive board, just real quick, you know, mm-hmm. send, send me a snapshot of, um, you know, what organizations you've been supporting in the last year or two. Tell me something other than the social post you just sent out because you were worried about the backlash, mm-hmm. right? And so authentic social engagement means actually having something to say and being able to back it up. So I I love talking about this, right? So first of all, let's go back to the data so that people know how this correlates with revenue and with loyalty. So one stat 81% of folks surveyed cited as a top factor in their purchase considerations is whether they can trust the brand to quote, do what is right. And, quote, do what is right means that the person who's buying from you thinks you're doing what's right. It's mm-hmm. not what you as a company think is right with all of your you know plethora of considerations, but actually those individual people who are doing business with you, they are still citing as a top factor, like the vast majority of people, they're, they're using their sense of how much they trust you as a brand as part of their consideration and whether they'll be your customer at all. We like to imagine, uh, and market theory likes to pretend that everyone is this purely rational actor with no emotion involved um, when it comes to money. And that's just absolutely empirically not the case whatsoever. Nothing has ever backed that up. So we see a vast majority of people citing that as a top factor. We even see though, to push into it further, We see that 50% of folks surveyed believe brands can do more to cure social issues than the government can. Now, I think that's really specific to America. um, And uh, I'm not really making a judgment one way or another other than to say um, governments who are not American are often more involved in societal issues than we are for a number of reasons. Um, But this is what people think. They think that companies can actually make an impact it's not just a matter of you having a stance it's actually people most people believe that you can do something meaningful in the world as a company as a results to social or as it relates to social issues um but at the same time we see 56 percent say that way too many brands are using societal issues as a marketing ploy to sell more product right and i again i think we saw a lot of that with the gratuitous uh, we support the Black Lives Matter generically posts that were coming out. For a lot of people, it was pretty clearly like, you're just kind of doing this because it's an opportunity for you to get some attention. Uh, and like people sense that in a real way. And so it, it's something that's important to acknowledge um, and, and interact with as a company because people want to be able to trust brands. So I, a couple of examples I love to share. First of all, uh, I love to bring out uh, Dove in their men care or men's care. I don't always know how to like pronounce a brand that has like a plus in the logo um, <laughs> but they they did this thing called a pledge for paternity leave. Um, in our you know, I mentioned that I got to give this talk in Sweden, uh, and I love watching the wide eyes as I remind everybody that in America, you get absolutely nothing in exchange for having a baby as it relates to being able to take time off of work. Um like you're you know, you're at the behest of your company, right? Um And so a lot of companies do that well, um, but especially when it comes to paternity leave, you know, you're forced as an individual to choose between your family and that new member that you just created and making money to survive as -hmm. a family um and and so it's a societal issue um and so dove was able to say actually we're going to do something really specific and here's where i think authenticity in social engagement really plays out so dove made this pledge for paternity leave and they did some really specific things. And that's the point of being authentic is doing specific things. They put up a website. They said, here's the problem we see. Here's why we want to get involved with it. Here's literally what we're going to do. So they created, I believe it was like a, a million dollar fund or something like that. And they were going to disperse they were going to disperse the funds in, you know, in certain amounts, $2500 something like that. I don't remember exactly, but the point was they used real numbers and then they used real dates. We're going to have this much money, we're going to disperse this much money by these dates. And the the thing about that is that authenticity needs to come with this ability for people to verify that you did what you said you were going to do. And that's the key difference. Instead of posting something generically, like, hey, we support the idea of men having paid maternity leave as a result of a law in the federal government. Instead of just posting something about it, they actually did something about it in a way where you can follow up. And honestly, you could go and see if they didn't do what they said they were gonna do. And you could follow up with Dove and say, hey, uh, this website that you posted had these exact numbers and these dates, what's the deal, right? And so like, that's the real feeling of authenticity, right? I I think it's really easy for us to internalize, uh, especially from a marketing angle, authenticity as like being casual with one another or like having a more playful tone and voice and again, you know, Josh, to your point that that you mentioned earlier, you want to be personable. You want to use uh, common tenets of talking to one another as human beings, but at the same time, being authentic means being vulnerable with people. Being able to share what's going on with you with other people, right? You're not best friends with someone who won't tell you anything about what's going on in their life, Mm -hmm. right? And so, like, that extends to authentic social engagement. You have to actually be specific about what you're going to do in order to gain that trust from people. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah,
2: and I think the the vulnerability, I love that. That's key um, because... it's not going to all happen overnight, and you may not have the the perfect answers for everything right away. But if you're sharing that you're working on things, and this is kind of the track that you're taking uh, for whatever it is, um, you know, you're being open with your consumers. This is a big area for me personally. I just, um, I don't think I've ever mentioned this on the podcast. So for those of who listen, uh, I spend a lot of my other volunteer time <laughs> um, doing anti-human trafficking work and so my brands the very first thing i do and almost every brand i purchase is look for their corporate responsibility statement look to see if they've got their supply chain um you know documented et cetera. and not everybody has it right right away but those that can say you know these are the things we've identified or we're working toward it's showing me okay yes they're taking this seriously and it, to your point um cliff is that they're taking action there's actionable steps behind it
3: yeah and Megan, can I ask you a couple of questions? Because I think that this would be really helpful. So, like, let's say you are looking into a specific company, you're looking at their supply chain, uh, and they don't have enough published information about it. But, mm-hmm. but you're you're optimistic about the brand, maybe. What would your next step be to find uh, out about it?
2: Yeah, sometimes I'll email the company.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me.
2: Most the time, I will. Yeah, because I'm not afraid so, to do that. But yeah.
3: So and then and you let me know again. You let me know if I'm wrong on this, but I'm betting. If you get back a platitude that has no specifics, you're yes. not going to feel like you can trust them. On the right. other hand, if they tell you something, even just one thing specifically, that helps validate what uh, you know what their supply chain looks like in a way that matches your question, they build trust with you almost immediately. And like I love to draw that out because it's important to remind people like this doesn't have to be a new marketing effort. You don't need to do a trust campaign where you then go and start publishing a bunch of trust specific content to your website. You could and it'll help you in the long term, but the most important thing Uh, and, And one thing I draw, especially in this presentation about helping companies engage socially is you have to empower the people who are making contact with other human beings on behalf of your company to answer questions directly and clearly, because that's actually the place where you can build the trust. Like that's the whole idea behind customer experiences anyway, is that marketing is only one Part of the touchpoint line uh, all the way through becoming a customer, becoming an advocate, all that stuff, right? You have to optimize for the human to human touchpoints because that's where trust is gained. And so I I felt like that was, I I hadn't really planned to mention that, but I love that you brought that up because I, I love to remind companies that actually, if you just empower your people to be honest, you can gain a lot of trust really quickly, even without a whole lot of structure or planning, On the other hand, if you're unable to allow your people to be honest with other people, that's an issue that you need to work on. You can't be authentic, uh, especially in a social sphere. If even inside your company, you're like, you know what, that's pretty risky for us to talk about honestly.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that empowerment is huge. I mean, that's a key pillar, I think, of a customer experience across the board. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. And sometimes I will say when I've emailed companies, even if they don't have anything, there's been some, um, and this has gained trust where they said, tell me more. Why is this important to you? I, we'd yep. love to learn more. That right there is a great way to start a conversation. Yeah, Totally.
1: And and Josh,
3: back to your point, like originally, like that's just conversational human to human contact. I don't have an answer for the question you're looking for, but I'm interested in hearing more about what matters to you. So tell me more. It's an invitation. Yeah. Uh
1: Yeah. I see it, but it's, it's, it's so difficult. I mean, you could, you can just get caught up in that, you know, what can I say? How should I say it? I'm representing the company. I I don't want to say the wrong thing or be misquoted. And, and, you know, that's, that's the thing that I see a lot with in, in our organization. And I have to just say like, you know what? I, as the marketer i'm the voice i'm doing a lot of this stuff and i make mistakes all the time they're tiny little mistakes and some are bigger than others but you know we can correct them and we can be genuine and you know what you know we we said the wrong thing we have to correct that we have to go back on it like it's not the end of the world and that's just part of of human nature and we can do that as an organization as long as we're transparent in doing that yeah, yes we 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 said something incorrectly we made a mistake and you know here's Here's the correct and here's what we're doing to correct it. So, yeah, I think a lot of it is just, you know, down to that regular human interaction.
3: You know, even, even further on that point, we didn't have a ton of time to talk about it today here. But that opportunity of actually when we said something to you, when we responded to your question, we didn't say it correctly. Here's what we meant. That is a trust building moment. Yep. That's vulnerability, that's honesty, and people are interested in hearing that. It's, it's really hard to remind people that your posture about authenticity should not be, uh, but my legal team won't let me do this. You need to find a way, and this is very specific actually, when I, I gave a version of this presentation with one of our heads of legal at Salesforce so that we could talk about actually what you need to do is get them involved in messaging so that you can empower not only And to push even further into it, this is where people uh, really start to laugh at me a little bit, but pushing even further than, uh, you know, customer facing employees, you should feel comfortable enabling your employees to speak about whatever they would like to speak about. You shouldn't try to confine people to just being a brand ambassador for the company that employs them 40 plus hours a week for their entire life, where they basically have a gag order on anything that might possibly be considered a touchy subject for the company and things like that. You actually need to redesign the way that you empower employees to speak. Uh, and again, Salesforce is an oppor- or is an example of doing this. Like our CEO, you can go ahead and follow him on Twitter. You're not gonna get the... Uh, you're not going to get the usual stuff you get from a CEO. And like, I don't even agree necessarily with everything he says, but that's not the point. The point is he's enabled to act like a human being. And we try to do things structurally that enable other people to continue to act like human beings because things matter to them as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh man. I wish we had like more time. Cause we could just go on. This is such good content cliff. I love it. Yeah, so. It feels like
1: we've been talking for five minutes and we could, you know, go on for an hour. Yeah.
2: Yeah. By the way, your your CEO's new book is is fantastic for those who haven't picked it up. That is a really good read. Uh, we'll link that in the, the show notes. Uh, so Cliff, one of the things that we do here on the podcast is, of course, get to know our guests a little bit more. And we've got some uh, hopefully questions that will, you know, show your vulnerable side. We're talking about that a lot today. So um We'll go ahead and get started with these. Uh, One of the first ones is kind of based off of Simon Sinek's Start With Why, and we always ask individuals, what is your why?
3: Yeah, I saw this question on the outline and took a deep breath and sighed for what felt like 30 minutes. Um, Mostly because I'm the type of person that's never going to be happy with whatever answer I give to this. 30 seconds afterwards, I'll think of something better and then 30 more seconds after that. I think the big thing to me that I've realized over time is that we can make our individual impacts by really focusing, it sounds really obvious, but it's more specific than just what I'm good at naturally. And it's more about, what do I have an affinity towards as an individual? What things do I see that other people don't necessarily see? What tool sets and ideas do I have that aren't common in other places where they might be helpful? And so to me, like this circles back to I think I mentioned at the beginning, um, you know, talking with you, Megan, like I try real hard to bring in design tools for marketers, right? Mm -hmm. And so to me, just thinking more about the way that I experience life and see things, I notice that I'm often able to connect things that don't seem connected all the time. And so for me, my why is being able to use that visibility into connection to draw those lines between things that seem different and disparate to help connect people to one another and help connect ideas to other ideas so that, you know, people can really use their collective strength to get things done. So, for me, you know, that's my kind of specific version of what I do well. Um, but for everybody, like I believe that, um, that your why should be tied up in your unique gifts, like the things that truly make you happy um, and that, you know, that show that have positive uh, effect and, and output on the world. Um, when you're able to do something like that, you should pay attention to it and try to reproduce it over and over again. It makes
1: other people happy, too, not just you.
2: Good answer. Oh, I love that.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: You can pull that out for a quote.
1: <laughs> so along those same lines, who and or what inspires you? This is going to take a weird turn. We like weird. We're going we to like. That. Weird. Let like. your let your freak flag fly. <laughs>
3: really bad things inspire me. Think things that are things that are broken. Um, you know, at you become a designer and eventually like you pass through that initial phase of like, oh my god, every door handle is wrong in the entire world and like you you kind of you you just build these levels of like oh my god everything is designed so terribly um but eventually you get over that and, and to me what it does instead is i i kind of hopefully i've passed through the kind of immaturity of that viewpoint and into a Actually, when we see what's wrong, we see the ineffective bits. We see the lack of communication. We see the things that people weren't enabled to do that they wanted to do. We see, essentially, even though it's a platitude, we see opportunities in things that are done poorly. And to me, what that starts to do is it it connects to what I was just talking about with, you know, what's your why? Like, to me, actually, the more that I see things that are wrong, that are clearly incorrect or not done well, it starts down a path of, okay, then. Let's flip that around. What would it look like for that to be successful? What would it mean for people to come together and do something different? And what implications does that have on everything else that's involved? I think it's it's really helped me to see the world really differently. And it inspires me in that way, because well, first of all, it frees me up from feeling like anything's ever going to be perfect because um, it's definitely not. Um, but secondly, it really gives me things to focus on personally and, and spend some mental attention on um, and figure out even in my own head, what things can I make an impact on and what are things that other people should be making impacts on and how can I help them to fix the things that are wrong?
2: Love that. All right. What is your favorite book and or podcast? And we take both personal and professional answers here.
3: You're gonna you're gonna get a mixture. All right. Um, so, first of all, I want to call out the book Flow by Mihai Um That book it it's a fantastic research-based study. Or, well, yeah, it's extremely research-based over decades of you know, of human history, looking at. What does it actually mean for people to be happy? What does it look like literally when they feel happy? And to me, even though it's a relatively straightforward book, you can, you know, grok what it's saying pretty quickly and easily. Um, And in some senses, it's just kind of almost like pop psychology type stuff. But for me, it connected with me in a really specific way, kind of relative to the, the other answers that I just gave. It helped me to start identifying times where I, this sounds strange, but Help me identify times where I was experiencing happiness. I feel like we don't always really know it in the moment. We kind of look back on things fondly and remember them, but it's hard to know at this moment right now, I'm feeling happy about what I'm doing. I'm enjoying it and I want to do more of it. And so what this enabled me to do, first of all, was think more through what my daily life looks like, how I can pay attention when things are mattering to me in a deep way. But then secondly, it really helped me with my work because it becomes a proxy for how to design anything well, because anything that's well-designed should be helping people do the things that are meaningful to them, right? And so I began to think of my own job and career as how do I maximize the flow of other people who are on the other end of the things that I'm building and designing and creating. And so that becomes like a, a really meaningful way for me to kind of work through life. Um, so that one's huge and then if you don't mind just a few other uh, less impactful ones but the ones that I love Um, first of all a book called badass making users awesome by Kathy Sierra Um, this is actually one of the greatest user experience books it's my favorite book on user experience I've ever read by far Um, and it is essentially like a comic book and Hmm. it's it's really incredible, so I love talking about that. It also has some connections with flow and how that applies to to designing things well, um, and then a couple of other ones. Um, anything from Seth Godin uh, always connects with me really deeply. Like I know pretty much everyone just nodded their heads, including yeah. all three of us, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yep all it's always worth bringing him back up because he's been so consistent uh and then uh i I could not say my buddy matt sweezy's context marketing revolution book that he just came out with um i've never met a person who's more able to deeply immerse themselves in marketing theory and come out the other side with actual insights uh and i love getting to talk to him about this stuff and i I was able to read uh, a a number of things from this book before it was actually published. And it's just, it's really incredible. And it's a really interesting way to look at the state of how things have shifted, especially uh, after the internet really got its legs.
1: Well, and we, of course, you got to have some podcasts that you like, right? Are you prompting me to talk about my own podcast? You well, your if, own, yeah. if that is your, is if it's your favorite podcast, and uh, yes, we are definitely going to ask you about your own podcast. But um, <laughs> if you have other podcasts that you're keen to as well, we love to hear those too.
3: Yeah, um, I go back and forth between uh, a few different ones on a pretty regular basis. Um, one of the ones I discovered through a friend uh, that's pretty popular at this point, but like always makes me smile is my brother, my brother and me. Have either of you ever heard this? No. <laughs> All right, three brothers out of West Virginia, and they are endlessly hilarious. Um, a really, I, I don't really know how to describe it other than it is a like conversational comedy type podcast, but it like but without the feel of like a stand up or someone who's telling jokes, like they're just naturally funny. Uh, and to me it's a, it's really relaxing to my brain. I like to just hear people talking who can make each other laugh. Um, and so like that, that one's a really great example. Um, and I would say everything else is just like when I've had enough of the funny stuff, I can go to a few different ones about politics and things like that, but mostly I just come back to that one as a base.
1: (laughs) Well then, okay. So do tell us about your podcast,
3: please. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so it's called Tundig. Uh, it has been a, a long-term passion project uh, with my my friend, Kyle. Um, we have done a number of things with that brand and company over the years, including, you know, for many years now, we've powered um, an, an advertising platform for uh, independent record stores and their coalitions. Uh, so we kind of do some of that and help those record stores um, with Promoting independent music and things like that. Um, But over time, it eventually evolved into like, we realized actually kind of the foundation of our whole friendship. We've known each other for a really long time. uh, Was always conversations about music. And people always commented on basically, you guys are huge dorks. Uh, You know way too much about all of this stuff. Um, And so we decided to give it a shot in terms of making a conversational podcast about a specific album. Uh, And one of the really important things about that, first of all, like, an album is not just an arbitrary collection of songs. It's not a playlist, right? It's something that the artist packaged together for you. Um, And I feel like it's a really underappreciated medium these days. So we love to talk about it, not only for the collection and its art itself, but like music doesn't happen in a vacuum. So we love to talk about the history that may have led up to or inspired the music itself. We love to talk about the moments in history in which the album, you know, actually dropped and became pervasive and how it impacted culture. Um, A lot of times music subverts culture in ways that we don't really see on the surface for a long time. Uh, And so it takes retrospect to be able to show the way that culture has shifted as a result of, you know, a lot of times just a handful of unemployed people making punk music and things like that, like shift things under our feet. And we don't see it because they don't, you know, they don't have the kind of public personas and platforms that we expect. So we go really deep on these. Um, we do our research, uh, although we've got a lot of this stuff in our heads, to be honest with you. Uh, and so, uh, we, we take a lot of time and we, we record in a studio uh, after the first two seasons, I think. Start recording in a studio. I mean, we edit it. We make sure that we are factually correct. Uh, you know, we we really try to make it uh, a piece of work that we'll go back on and appreciate, as opposed to just necessarily recording um, uh, just kind of like a conversation. Whatever comes to our heads at the time. Uh, so we work real hard on it. Um, in light of COVID, we've been transitioning a little bit and trying some slightly different formats um, because. Um, that particular format kind of relies on spending time with one another in a quiet space and talking directly about a specific thing. Uh, So lately we've been doing a little bit more of a radio format. Uh, My buddy Kyle used to... um, DJ uh, a radio show over on the local college radio station. Uh, And so we kind of like take that format where we'll assemble a playlist together, um, use the context of musical history and social change and all that to talk about why these songs are put together this way. Um, But then here we're actually saying, hey, take a break and go listen to this song and come back and let's go to the next. Um, So it's, it's really a passion project for us. Uh, we make absolutely no money off of it. We do nothing good with it, other than uh, we're proud of it ourselves. <laughs>
1: well, and that's just the beauty of podcasts. I mean, there's a podcast for everybody, and it's it's great to see people that are so passionate about something, anything, no matter what it is, and um, and music. Yeah, I just, how do you guys deal with all the uh, the Payola and all the record companies trying to get their artists in on your show? Uh, we don't care about any of it. <laughs> That's
3: pretty much how we do it at this point. Yeah. Now we, we, I mean, we've actually kind of laughed about it because like, you know, over the years we've built up enough connections where we probably could do something a little bit more commercial. Um, but we, we've always been a little worried about like, you know, speaking of authenticity, um, how can, how can we do this in an authentic way where we can openly talk about, you know, the implicate, I mean, some of the things we talk about uh, in music history necessarily involves bad moves made by record labels, right? Um, like, People are all wrapped up in history and sometimes to to bring it out and show what an album actually did. You got to talk about some stuff that didn't go super well. Uh, So as of right now, at least we uh, we avoid pretty much all of that so that we can just talk about whatever we feel like. (laughs) Yep. The art. (laughs) Oh yeah.
2: Awesome. All right. Well, last question Um, based on what you've learned throughout your career, what is one piece of advice that you would give to others?
3: I'm going to try a a new answer to this question today. I think I'd usually have a different one. Um, And I, I felt like this has really started to emerge lately, but helps people understand their role in a world that is quite literally connected in a way that, no part of human history has ever enabled. Um, you know, for someone like myself, uh, you know, I remember having our first computer. I remember always being the nerdiest person in the house because I grew up with the computer at that point, you know? And Mm -hmm. so like, I still remember the time before everything was connected and we could all talk to each other all the time across the world. Um, And yet, you know, generations are being born with no inkling of what that was ever like. And so that's only going to continue to go in the direction of people needing to see themselves in this giant network um, in the way that they're connected instantly to everything else and everybody else in the world. So the best advice I've got at this point, start to dig into systems thinking, start to learn what it means to understand how systems work to be able to describe like scopes of a problem, uh scope of an idea, be able to understand how these little parts of a system interact with one another because what's so different about it now? Sorry, you got me going on this for just a second. Um, so like even if you used the way that Facebook has interacted America or uh, has uh the way that Facebook has impacted American politics. So I think everyone would agree it has to some degree or not. People might have opinions on the way it should or shouldn't. Maybe it shouldn't have. Maybe it should change now, whatever. The thing that's important, and I'm really starting to see, especially now with, with, with COVID, with the Black Lives Matter movement, with politics and all this, we've got people on Facebook who don't understand how Facebook as a system operates. So they don't understand what they do when they see a post come into their feed. First of all, they don't understand how it got there. Second of all, they agree with it and then they reshare it. They don't understand how they're impacting the shareability of the thing that they're sharing when they share it. Third, That starts to then pass it along to other people who would have had no exposure to this post at all because of their action. And they also don't understand how that works. And just like this one really specific part of it, to me, highlights the we are enmeshed in systems that were built around us. And we have very little idea of how to make changes to those systems because we don't know how to literally understand how they work. And so what you end up doing with systems thinking, for instance, is you begin to get some names and labels and concepts around, okay, how do I break down, for instance, how Facebook's algorithm works? How do things come to me and what impacts that? What happens when I share it and what am I in the system? What's the difference between liking and sharing or copying and pasting the link or copying and pasting text? Like... It's, it's such a, a keen and, and specific example right now, I think, of just how much we don't know about the things that are ultimately controlling us in ways that we don't totally understand. Uh, and so like I, I don't want to sound like I'm going into any sort of conspiracy theory there about like being controlled uh, sure. by anyone or a government or anything like that. But I think the big idea again is like from the moment we're born, we're impacting other people and other things in ways that we don't know how to understand. And so the faster that we can understand how we impact the world and how others impact us, the greater chance we have to make the differences that we're looking to make because we'll understand how to change and possibly dismantle if needed, the systems that we're inside of.
2: Thank you, Cliff. Today, oh, it's just such insightful information and I love chatting with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we always ask, in case our listeners have any questions or just want to learn more from you, where can they reach you?
3: Luckily, I'm like the only Cliff Seal on the internet, uh, except for some kid who doesn't know what SEO is yet out in Iowa. <laughs> um, so you can pretty much just Google Cliff Seal. Uh, you'll find any way to contact me, and uh, you know, hopefully, Megan and now Josh would attest to uh, I'm a friendly guy. Uh, if you want to ask oh, some okay. questions or have a thought, you know, send it on in. I would love to talk to folks um, and, and really love to help however I can.
2: So yeah, awesome. When when is your book coming out? <laughs>
3: You know what, Megan, I was thinking about that the other day. You were the last person to ask me about that, and you planted a seed a long time ago. Uh, And even though the the thought of putting in the work to create a book uh, scares me absolutely out of my mind, um, you're the main voice who's been in there reminding me, I'm probably going to have to do this eventually.
1: Go Megan, you're the inspiration.
2: Well, I will be the first to buy it, so I think you, yeah. You better going to keep pinging you where's your book where's your your book
3: yeah if you didn't buy it once i wrote it i'd be pretty disappointed you convinced (laughs) me of this True. true thank you so much both for having me i I really it was really nice to to get to chat with you and and share some of these ideas this has been really great
1: yes Uh,
2: well thank pleasure's all ours a great opportunity to chat with you again so thank you so much
1: Thank you, Cliff. Great conversation. Our AMA West Michigan season has effectively ended with our in-person events in accordance with the recent stay home and stay safe directives. But we are still active on social media, sharing relevant content and resources. And of course, we'll always be here at the Marketers in Motion podcast, bringing you new content. And we will continue that throughout the summer. We'll actually be kicking off our 2021 AMA West Michigan season in September. So more information will come later this summer. But keep in touch with us online. Again, we're at AMA maywestmichigan.org. We do want to hear from you. What content are you loving? What are you not liking so much? What do you want to hear more about in the future? Just let us know. We encourage you to subscribe, review, and engage with us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and wherever great podcasts can be found. Megan, we'll
0: see you next month.
2: Sounds good. See you then,
0: Josh. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe and share our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Don't forget important links, content, and resources will be included in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. What will you do with the information you learned today? Be inspired. Be creative, be bold, set your marketing in motion.